Series 2 Episode 13 The Killing of a Queen In 1586, Robert Dudley, the Earl of Leicester had been placed in command of the English Expeditionary Force in Holland, on the understanding that his advice to the Dutch on political matters could only go so far. Over the next two months, bad weather in the North Sea severely hampered his communications with England, and as the days turned into weeks without any contact, his resourcefulness and resilience were tested. Perhaps feeling abandoned by his government, Dudley made the fateful decision to accept the governor-general position offered to him by Holland. On the 25th of January, 1586, officials at The Hague administered his oath of office. Upon finding out, Elizabeth was outraged, immediately demanding Leicester's resignation. His response was to blame Davison for his advice. The Queen, requiring a full explanation of his actions, immediately recalled Davison. Davison and his support team including Brewster, left the port of Flushing, bound for England, to face Queen Elizabeth. Upon his arrival in England, Davison faced the wrath of the Queen, despite having previously received her praise for his remarkable diplomatic skills. Her anger stemmed from Leicester's decision to accept the governorship in Amsterdam, declaring that Leicester and Davison behaved with too much independence for her English mission. In a typically sharply worded response, Davison, seeing no need to apologize, waited for Queen Elizabeth to change her mind. She did not, and Davison and his entourage, including his assistant William Brewster, were forced to leave Elizabeth's court under a cloud. While in Holland, Brewster had the opportunity to fully experience the lively atmosphere of the Dutch city's towns and villages, including Leiden. He not only had the chance to closely observe the daily lives of the locals, but he also established valuable relationships with the local authorities. Brewster, working with Davison was introduced to the more liberal and tolerant Dutch style of government, observing the Dutch reformed Congregationalist church in action and flourishing. Despite his Anglican upbringing, Brewster was fascinated by the simplicity of their liturgies and the congregation's independence in policy and practice. In the 1580s, Richard Bancroft diligently continued his work behind the scenes assisting church leaders in their campaign against Puritan ideas that were starting to take root among the clergy. He accomplished this by means of his writings, such as of the survey of pretended holy discipline, eloquent sermons, and rigorous enforcement of church rules and regulations. About this time, the Church of England started to see John Udall's unwavering commitment to a strict adherence to biblical principles as being in conflict with their widely held theories and doctrine. As a consequence, Thomas Cooper, Bishop of Winchester, and William Day, Dean of Windsor, summoned Udall to attend the Court of High Commission at Lambeth. There, they subsequently dismissed him from his ministry. Anne Dudley, the Countess of Warwick and Sir Drew Drury, appealed on his behalf and successfully applied to have him restored. By this time, John Field, Walter Travers, and Thomas Cartwright were all free and back in England. With a shared purpose binding them together, they were determined to propose a new order for the Church of England. Thus, in 1586, they drafted a Book of Discipline, hoping for its acceptance by Parliament. 
However, once again, the Puritan effort failed to pass. In 1586, a momentous event occurred in the life of Henry Barrow. As he made his way past a London church, he was captivated by the sound of a preacher's spirited sermon. Without hesitation, he entered the church, completely engrossed in the religious message. Little did he know that this single experience would forever alter the course of his life. Filled with determination to make up for the mistakes of his past, he made the decision to wholeheartedly devote himself to the study of scripture and the exploration of good books. Richard Clifton became the pastor of All Saints Church in Babworth, Nottinghamshire on the 11th of July, 1586. Not only did this appointment grant him a prestigious position, but it also provided him with the opportunity to embark on a new chapter in his life through marriage. Clifton and his wife and had three daughters, who all died in infancy, and three surviving sons born at Babworth. Having graduated with his B.A., John Penry moved to St. Albans Hall, Oxford, gaining his M.A. in July 1586. By now, he had become a Protestant with strong Puritan tendencies. Deciding not to seek ordination, he chose to become licensed as a university preacher. After Robert Brown's health improved, he resumed writing and preaching illegally, leading to some local clergy reporting him to the authorities. Bishop Howard of Peterborough summoned Brown to answer these charges, but Brown refused to attend and subsequently faced excommunication. However, later in the year, and entirely unexpectedly, Robert Brown decided to recant. He quickly requested absolution, signing the submission form to the Church of England and the Episcopy. Brown submitted his case to the Church of England in the hope of bringing an end to the unceasing scrutiny he had endured. Was the threat of excommunication the catalyst for his change of attitude, or did the fact that he was the father of nine children also play a role in influencing his decision? However, doubt still lingered in his mind, casting a shadow of uncertainty over his decision. From 1579 to 1585, Robert Brown played a crucial role as an active separatist. However, his journey took a different turn as he eventually returned to the Church of England. Following his return, he served as the headmaster of St. Olaf's School in Southwark from 1586 to 1589. Later, while headmaster of Stamford Grammar School from 1589 to 1591. Brown would finally complete his transformation from a separatist rebel to an Anglican conformist. He would continue to engage in disputes and debates with those still holding to their initial separatist positions, and who now regarded him as a renegade. In particular, he replied several times to criticisms from John Greenwood and Henry Barrow. Brown's response titled A Reproof of Certain Schismatical Persons and Their Doctrine Regarding the Hearing and Preaching of the Word of God written between 1587 and 1588, may provide a valuable insight into the evolution of his subsequent beliefs. In 1586, Anthony Babington a young recusant, and John Ballard, a Jesuit priest, recruited each other for a plan to assassinate Queen Elizabeth I and put her Catholic cousin Mary Queen of Scots on the English throne. Their goal was to restore the old religion by invading England with the Spanish forces of King Philip II and the Catholic League in France. However, Elizabeth's spymaster, Sir Francis Walsingham, had discovered the plot and would use it to entrap Mary, and in doing so, would remove her as a claimant to the English throne. On the 11th of August, 1586, 
Mary Queen of Scots was arrested while out riding and taken to Tixel after being implicated in the Babington plot. Tixel is a small village and civil parish in the English county of Staffordshire. Tixel Hall was the home of the Aston family, staunch Roman Catholics, who held the title Lord Aston of Forfar, Scotland. Walsingham had previously arranged to smuggle Mary's letters out of Chartley, her current residence in a successful attempt to entrap her. Walsingham had deceived Mary into thinking her letters were secure while he was deciphering and reading them all the time. Reading these letters, it was clear that Mary had sanctioned the attempted assassination of Elizabeth. Mary Queen of Scots, who at the age of 46, had already spent much of her 18 years of imprisonment at Sheffield Castle and Sheffield Manor, was now taken to Fotheringay Castle, a four-day journey ending on the 25th of September. Fotheringay Castle was a grim, Norman Mott and Bailey Castle to the north of Oundle, a Northamptonshire market town, now used as a state prison. In early October, before a court of 36 noblemen, including Cecil Shrewsbury and Walsingham, Mary was charged with treason in the castle's Great Hall, under the Act for the Queen's Safety. She attended her trial, which lasted two days. Spirited in her defence, Mary denied all the charges against her, scolding her triers, remarking, Look to your consciences and remember that the theatre of the whole world is wider than this Kingdom of England. She protested that the authorities had denied her the opportunity to review evidence, had illegally removed her papers, and denied her access to legal counsel. Mary further declared herself a foreign legally anointed queen, explaining in her defence that she had never been an English subject and therefore could not be convicted of treason. At this point, at the court's instruction, the trial was suspended for further private deliberations. Four days later, the court was reconvened in the Star Chamber at Westminster, ominously not inviting Mary to attend this time. Mary Queen of Scots was convicted on 25 October and sentenced to death, with only one commissioner, Lord Zouche, expressing any form of dissent. However, Elizabeth hesitated to order Mary's execution, even under pressure from the English Parliament to carry out the sentence. She rightly feared the consequences of killing a queen, especially if it led to retaliation from Mary's son James, who might ally himself with Europe's Catholic powers and attempt to invade England. And so, Elizabeth discreetly approached Paulette, Mary's final custodian, asking him to contrive a covert way to shorten the life of Mary, which he took to mean murder. He refused, explaining that he did not wish to make a shipwreck of my conscience or leave so great a blot on my future generations. In 1586, the same year of Brown's recantation, Barrow and Greenwood were members of the London Underground, a secret assembly of separatists, meeting in private houses on river banks in local woods or the many gravel pits of Islington. Although John Greenwood had only joined the group the previous year, by 1586, he had become the recognised leader of the London separatists, as many of them had been in prison since 1567. Greenwood's previous ordination and having already held the chaplain's office in a Puritan household had marked him out for prominence. However, Barrow, whom he had introduced to the group, soon gained recognition as their leader due to his natural force of character. However their disagreements with him on the organisation of the new church still remained. While the church's authority technically rested with the congregation, the elders held their office as a trust, with absolute church authority lying with them. 
the two men favored a more autocratic leadership style, with members meek and submissive. Although the congregation already had about 100 members, they had not yet organized into a church, they had to wait until 1592 for that to occur. They always met, by prior appointment, early on the Sabbath, continuing all day in prayer and exposition. They rejected liturgical forms of worship, the sacraments of baptism and communion, and any idea of secular interference with the church. At every meeting, they collected funds for expenses and used the remaining balance to help support imprisoned congregation members. The congregation would meet secretly for a gloriously brief and joyous period, finding fellowship in the gospel. However, it was not to last, for the archbishop's spies were everywhere. Whitgift had successfully suppressed the Puritan classes, he would now go after this separatist conventicle. Queen Elizabeth hesitated for over two months before finally signing Mary's death warrant. In the end, she only signed it under pressure from William Cecil. After signing it on 1 February, 1587, she entrusted it for safekeeping to William Davison, a privy councillor who she later asserted had disobeyed her instructions to wait for further orders, before placing the Queen's official seal on the warrant. Mistakenly, and in good faith, thinking all was secure, Davison passed the now-sealed warrant, intended for safekeeping to William Cecil. On the 3rd of February, and without Elizabeth's and Davison's knowledge, William Cecil summoned ten members of the Privy Council of England to a meeting. Cecil had gained possession of Mary's death warrant. He now set out to persuade the council members to agree to complete the sentence. On the evening of the 7th of February, 1587, Robert Beale, the clerk of Queen Elizabeth's Privy Council, who had been sent to Fotheringay Castle by William Cecil, read out to Mary her death warrant, and informed her that she was to be executed the following morning. Mary spent the last hours of her life praying in the castle's small chapel, distributing her belongings to her household, and writing her will and a letter to the King of France. The scaffold, erected in the castle's great hall, was draped in black cloth and reached by two or three steps. It had been simply furnished, with the block, a cushion for kneeling, three stools, one each for her, and the earls of Shrewsbury and Kent as witnesses to the execution. Mr. Bull, the executioner, and his assistant knelt before her, requesting forgiveness, following the custom where the executioner asks for the pardon of the one they are about to put to death. Mary replied, I forgive you with all my heart, for now I hope you shall end all my troubles. Her servants Jane Kennedy and Elizabeth Curl, and the executioner helped Mary remove her outer garments, revealing a velvet petticoat with a pair of sleeves in crimson brown, the liturgical color of martyrdom in the Catholic Church, with a black satin bodice and trimmings. As she disrobed, Mary smiled and said she never had such grooms before nor ever put off my clothes before such a company. Her servant Jane Kennedy blindfolded her with a white veil embroidered in gold. Kneeling on the cushion, she slowly positioned her head on the block before her. Stretching out her arms to the side, her last words were, in manus tuas dominhe, commendo spiritum meam, into thy hands O Lord I commend my spirit. Unfortunately, the executioner did not behead Mary Queen of Scots with a single strike. His first blow missed her neck, striking the back of her head instead. The second blow severed her neck, except for a small piece of the sinew, which the executioner followed through, cutting through it with his axe. Afterwards, in keeping with tradition, 
the executioner held Mary's head aloft, declaring, God save the queen. At that moment, the auburn tresses in his hand turned out to be a wig, and the head, falling to the ground, revealed that Mary, aged 45 had very short grey hair. And so, it was on the 8th of February, 1587, that Mary, the Queen of the Scots, lost her life. Mary had requested to be buried in France, but Elizabeth had refused. For almost five months, they did not bury her. Instead, they left her now embalmed body in a secure lead coffin before finally laying it to rest in a Protestant service on 5 August, 1587 in Peterborough Cathedral. Catherine of Aragon, a previous queen and wife of King Henry VIII, had already been interred at Peterborough Cathedral in 1536. Mary's entrails, removed as part of the embalming process, were buried secretly within the grounds of Fotheringay Castle. A drawing titled The Execution of Mary Queen of Scots at Fotheringay Castle 1587, was drawn contemporaneously by Robert Beale, clerk of the Privy Council to Queen Elizabeth I, who also wrote the official record of the execution to which he was an eyewitness. Key figures identified in the drawing are, George Talbot, 6th Earl of Shrewsbury and Henry Gray, 6th Earl of Kent, both of which are seated to the left, and Sir Amias Powlett, one of Mary's guards who is seated behind the scaffold. When news of the execution reached Elizabeth, she became upset and indignant, asserting that Davison had disobeyed her instructions not to part with the warrant and that the Privy Council had acted without her authority. Following on from her recent disagreement with Davison over the Dutch governorship issue, this would quickly become a significant problem for Davison. Elizabeth's hesitation and her apparently deliberately vague instructions gave her plausible deniability in an attempt to avoid the direct stain of Mary's blood. To conceal her complicity in the death of Mary Stuart, Elizabeth accused her Secretary of State William Davison of covering Mary's death warrant among other papers he presented to her for signature. He was to be her scapegoat. Charged before the Star Chamber with misprision and contempt, Davison was acquitted of evil intention but found guilty of misprision, the neglect or wrong performance of official duty. The court sentenced him to pay a fine of 10,000 marks and imprisoned him at the Queen's pleasure. In England, the mark never appeared as a coin but was only used as a unit of account. Davison was released in September 1588, 19 months later, after Cecil and Walsingham had interceded on his behalf. Generally, people consider the spymaster Walsingham to have supported Cecil's scheme to execute the Queen of Scots. Remember earlier when we said we would cross paths with Judge Ray? Like most gentlemen of the North, Ray was probably a Catholic at heart, but he steered a cautious path. In the spring of 1569, he went to the Assizes at York, Carlisle and Durham to attend the trials of the Northern rebels and receive their submissions. Other principal state trials over which he presided were those of the Puritan John Stubbs, the Jesuit Edmund Campion and his harbourer, William Lord Vose, and later in 1585 the conspirators against the life of the Queen, John Somerville and William Parry. In October 1586, he was present at Fotheringay Castle as assessor to the tribunal, before which the Queen of Scots pleaded in vain for her life but appeared to have taken no part in the proceedings. Presiding over the trial of the unfortunate Secretary of State, William Davison, on the 28th of March, 1587, Ray announced the court's harsh sentence, coldly criticizing him as good but not that good due to his indiscreet zeal. 
Furthermore, and just for completeness, Sir Christopher Ray passed away on the 7th of May, 1592. He was interred at the Church of St. Michael, Glentworth, Lincolnshire. The Star Chamber was an English court, which sat at the Royal Palace of Westminster from the late 15th to the mid-17th century. It is thought to be named after its ceiling decorations. Gold stars on a blue background were a common medieval decoration for ceilings in richly decorated rooms. The chamber was composed of privy councillors and common law judges, to supplement the judicial activities of the common law and equity courts in civil and criminal matters. Initially, the authorities established the Star Chamber to guarantee the just implementation of laws against socially and politically powerful individuals, whose offences might be challenging to prove in regular courts. However, it soon became synonymous with social and political oppression through the arbitrary use and abuse of its power. The Privy Council of England was a body of advisers to the Sovereign of the Kingdom of England, a powerful institution that advised the Sovereign on important state matters including the royal prerogative and the granting of royal charters. Its members were often senior members of the House of Lords and the House of Commons, together with leading churchmen, judges, diplomats and military leaders. In 1587, Richard Bancroft was made a canon of Westminster Cathedral. In 1587 Queen Elizabeth asked Sir Christopher Hatton to lead an attack on the ideas of Thomas Cartwright. Hatton started, arguing that introducing a Presbyterian system would mean establishing a theocracy, the exercising of political power by the clergy or laity, thereby placing the patronage rights of landowners in jeopardy. Sir Christopher Hatton, Knight of the Garter, was born in 1540. He was an English politician and Lord Chancellor of England, one of the judges who found Mary Queen of Scots guilty of treason. Hatton was an investor in some voyages of Francis Drake. During his subsequent circumnavigation of the globe, Drake renamed his ship the Golden Hind in honour of his supporter Hatton's coat of arms. Hatton Garden is now at the heart of the UK's trade in cut diamonds, taking its name from Sir Christopher Hatton who established a mansion here and gained possession of the garden and orchard of Ely Place, previously the London seat of the bishops of Ely. In 1562, Parliament passed an act, officially sanctioning the necessary arrangements to translate the New Testament into the Welsh language. The translation was completed and finally published in 1567. However, the numbers printed were small. There was barely enough to supply a copy for each parish church. John Penry was indignant at this failure and, in early 1587, published his treatise, The Equity of a Humble Supplication, on behalf of the country of Wales, that some order may be taken for the preaching of the gospel among those people. Members of Parliament Edward Dunley and Job Throckmorton presented this for approval at the next session, which lasted from the 15th of February to March 1587. Archbishop Whitgift, angry at its implied criticism, swiftly issued a warrant for Penry's arrest, ordering the stationer's company to confiscate all copies of the treatise. One consequence of Penry's brush with episcopal authority is that the treatise would be the only one of his many publications to be printed openly in England. The rest were published either on secret presses or centres of Puritan printing such as Middleburgh, Edinburgh and Amsterdam. Penry, now aged 24, found himself before the Court of High Commission for examination and was sentenced to 12 days in prison, where he would remain for a month. 
Previously in 1586, Whitgift had obtained from the court of the Star Chamber a decree forbidding the publication of books, pamphlets, or tracts not authorized by himself or the Bishop of London. This had given Whitgift control over the stationer's company, the printing presses, and the ability to repress any literature he considered slanderous or seditious. Whitgift would use this decree to suppress Puritan writings, labeling them heretical. In February 1587, Sir Anthony Cope, MP, presented the Presbyterian Book of Discipline to Parliament and offered up a bill for its enactment into law. The book, written in 1587 by Walter Travers for an English Presbyterian church, set out to authorize the Geneva Liturgy as the only legal prayer in the Church of England. In addition, the bill proposed to void all former laws, customs, statutes and constitutions that define England's religious practices and ecclesiastical organization. Walter Travers was ordained priest in Antwerp by Thomas Cartwright in 1578, becoming chaplain to the English merchant adventurers in Antwerp before returning to England in 1580 as chaplain to William Cecil, and in 1581 as deputy minister at the Temple Church. He was a leading voice in the Puritan Presbyterian movement in London. It was, at this moment, that Queen Elizabeth acted to stop the bill. For their submissions, Cope and three others, together with MP Sir Peter Wentworth who had supported him by bringing forward specific articles, relating to members' liberties in the House of Commons, were committed to prison in the Tower for twenty-five days and charged with interfering with the royal ecclesiastical prerogative. The royal prerogative is one of the UK Constitution's most significant elements. The concept of prerogative power stems from the medieval king acting as head of his kingdom. The prerogative enables ministers, among many other things, to deploy the armed forces, make and unmake international treaties, and grant honors.